0: Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on to them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. These words made Ronald Reagan a marked man in the political realm. He would eventually go on to serve as a governor of California and finally being the president of the United States. It was a message at the time that united people in the pursuit of freedom. It awakened people from their complacency and it reinvigorated men and women to stand up for freedom and to get involved. Reagan reminded the people that freedom isn't a guarantee. It isn't based on a bloodline or genetics But rather, it's a concept whose pillars must be transferred for fear of the foundation crumbling and disintegrating in the future. The book of Judges provides a similar jolt of reality to all who read it. We remember and we're reminded that people aren't born inclined to serve God, and faith in God also isn't passed down in the bloodstream, it needs to be taught. It's hard to read this book without recognizing the utter failure of God's people over and over. During the life of Joshua, the Israelites were doing well, but it wouldn't take long for them to spiral down into decay. The book of Judges follows the Israelites, taking two steps back and one step forward. Two steps back and one step forward. I'm getting farther and farther away from my notes, so I have to take a few more notes. You don't go forward when you're doing that. It's hard to make any kind of progress whatsoever when you're going backwards and backwards and backwards some more. Judges summarizes Israel's history from entering the promised land when they first crossed the Jordan River until right before the reign of kings. The book begins marking the failure of each tribe to take the land that the Lord has promised them. Yes, they took bits of pieces of it, but they didn't expel everyone who was living in the land like the Lord had told them to do, like the Lord had commanded them to do. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 2. As we read verses 1 through 19, and we'll see that the pattern throughout this whole book is revealed for us and introduced for us in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 19. And if you're able, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 19. Reading in Jesus' name. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I, sworn to, I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bohem, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance, in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. All the generations also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord, nor yet work. "'nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. "'And the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord "'and served the Baals. "'And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, "'who had brought them out of the land of Egypt "'and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples "'who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them, "'and thus they provoked the Lord to anger. "'So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. "'The anger of the Lord burned against Israel.' And he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the, was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them." But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. Father God, these are your words. Your words are truth. Lord, as we open up your word this morning and as we hear the truths of scripture, Father, we pray that you would reveal to us our own sin. Lord, reveal to us our own tendency to turn away from you. And draw us back to yourself. Help us to see your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. But Lord, help us also to see your stern law as well. Turn us back to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Chapter 2 begins with an appearance of the angel of the Lord. Most of the commentaries that I looked at mention that this is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. And whether or not it's the pre-incarnate Christ or a different messenger of the Lord, the messenger comes and speaks with a message from the Lord, a message from God. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. The Lord reaffirms his covenant with these people. He had made a covenant that these people would be his people and that he would be their God. He promised to give them the land and to fight for them. They need only to be strong and courageous and go forward in faith. And the Lord would drive the people out of the land ahead of them. The Lord would drive the Canaanites out of the promised land. All they needed to do was act in faith and obey the Lord. Chapter 1 records their failure to follow through with God's instructions, they didn't possess the land fully. They were given clear instructions to make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall tear down their altars. But they didn't obey. Despite their failure, the Lord promised and reminded them that he would never break his covenant with them, that he would always be there to be their God, and that they were to be his people. He would make them holy, and he would make them obedient. Would they believe it? Would they keep the covenant? It remained yet to be seen, but it wouldn't take long. Because of their disobedience, because of their failure to take the land, the Lord was going to leave the rest of the Canaanites, Canaanites there in the land. The Lord wasn't going to drive them out anymore. They would remain to be a snare to the people. Would they serve the Lord God and Him alone? Or will they be swayed by the gods of the land? Will they worship at the very altars that they were supposed to tear down when they came into the land? The people respond with weeping in verse 5. but They also do something else. There's something else included in their response. They sacrifice to the Lord. They make their statement that they will serve the Lord and they will serve the Lord alone. The next section of the text notes that the people continued to serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. A note is made about these elders. These are the elders who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. This generation was the generation that saw the mighty acts of God under Joshua's guidance. They were the soldiers holding the swords as God was delivering them from their enemies. They witnessed the destruction of Jericho. They marched around it and saw the walls crumbling down. They were there when the Lord caused the sun to stand still, when time literally stood still, and the Lord gave their enemies into their hands. The mighty acts of God weren't read in textbooks, but they were lived experiences of these elders. And so these people served the Lord. God was their God. They were his people. The covenant that the Lord had made with his people would be tested, though. Joshua and his generation served the Lord faithfully, but there soon would be another generation, one who came after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. How could that be? The knowledge of the acts of God aren't passed down in the bloodstream either, but again, they must be taught to the next generation and the next. Verse 11 is short. And blunt, and there really isn't a whole lot more that needs to be said in that verse. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The fathers before them, they worshiped the Lord and served the Lord, but this next generation comes up and they no longer serve the Lord. They turn their back on him and they serve the Baals, the gods of the land. They forsook the Lord and followed the gods of the peoples around them. They bowed down to them and they worshiped them at their altars. And they had the rich heritage of being the Lord's chosen people. And yet they threw it all away to become just like everyone else. How often do we do that too? We've been given a rich heritage in God's word, but all we really want is to be like everybody else, to blend in, not to stick out from the crowd. The Lord who had made a covenant with these people was rightfully provoked to anger Throughout Scripture, the relationship between God and his people is described as a marriage. From God betrothing himself to them when he delivered them from Egypt all the way to the marriage feast of the Lamb. You can trace this theme of God marrying himself to his people, betrothing himself to his people. They were to have no other gods before him. They were to serve the Lord and the Lord alone. And yet the people prostituted themselves. And went after other gods. The Lord calls them out for their playing the whore in other passages. It's blunt. It's crass. It's not a very nice thing to say about anyone. And yet this is what God says in his word about his people. Because it's true. Who of you would continue to stand by your spouse when your spouse is constantly cheating on you? Not once, not twice, but constantly cheating on you. It's a horrible thought, but it's the language that God uses to burn this treachery into our brains. His people had rejected his covenant. They had rejected and forsaken the Lord. And it seems to be an unforgivable betrayal. We would understand if it was unforgiven. In verses 14 through 15, the anger of the Lord then burns against Israel. They were delivered over to the very ones that they should have conquered and should have conquered easily. If only they would have obeyed the Lord. The very ones the Lord was going to drive away before them. But they wouldn't listen and obey. They wouldn't do it. For as many reasons as they had, they would not expel them from the land. And now they are reaping what they've sown. There was no escape either. Look at verse 15. Wherever they went, Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord has spoken. And as the Lord had sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. It seems as though God's people had been his chosen victim to pick on. That they're just the runt of the litter that all the bullies have their heyday with, and the Lord being one of them. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord is against them. And they could find no relief. Wherever they went, the God was always there with his hand against them. And it might seem to us to be a bit harsh. But remember who these people were. They were the ones who had received the covenant and yet rejected it. What else should they expect? God was clear this was going to happen. If you turn your back on me, if you reject me, this is what I will do. They knew the consequences ahead of time. And yet they still made that poor decision. He told them what would happen if they turned away to serve other gods. This isn't new information. It shouldn't have been a surprise. The people had rejected the covenant. Now the question remains, would the Lord leave it too? The Lord didn't forget his covenant. He didn't leave his covenant either. He didn't break it. When the time was right, God acted on their behalf. That while they are still serving other gods, while they are still living in sin, while their backs are turned toward God, because of his love, because of his covenant faithfulness, God acts and he upholds his covenant once again. Verse 1 says, I will never break my covenant with you. And in verse 16, we see God making good on his word, once again acting on his promise. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Did the Lord need to do this? He wasn't contractually obliged to do it. Did he have to bail out these idolaters, these ones who have left the safety of the covenant in search of greener pastures? in search of better gods, did God have to say, no, quit following those gods. I will redeem you once again. I will deliver you again. Even though you're not looking for it at the time. Absolutely not. And yet this is what God did. He did it because he will never break his covenant. You would hope that that was the end of the story. That the people turned away from their sinful ways and they served the Lord wholeheartedly but that's not what happened. What happened was exactly what happened before. In verse 17, the people played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. Like pigs wallowing in their own filth, they go back to their sinful ways, not listening to the judge the Lord raised up to set them free. The solution was only temporary, and it only lasted as long as the judge lived. But once that judge died, the people turned their backs on the Lord again, and they acted more corruptly than their fathers, to the point where it almost would have been better if no judge came at all. They didn't abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. The Lord continued to raise up judges for his people, though. And as you read through the book of Judges, you can read judge after judge after judge after judge whom the Lord himself is raising up to deliver these prone-to-wander sinners. And the people continued to turn from him once the judge died. What the people needed was a judge who would live forever. At the fullness of time, God provided him too. And God sent forth his Son to deliver mankind from the power of sin and death to rescue his people and to rescue you and me from the bondage of darkness, where we have bowed down to the idols of the day, whatever idols that might be. They're out there and there are plenty of them, but the worst part is, not only are they out there, but they're in here, residing in our own hearts. We have our own idols that we want to serve. Whatever that looks like, whatever they might be beckoning to you and distracting you from the one true God silently whispering lies to you to convince you of your own self-sufficiency that you don't need any help, you're okay. You can come back later, it's fine. You've got this. The idea that these idols lure us with the false promises of success and significance, that maybe if you come back, but first focus on your career, focus on all of these other things. Maybe even offer us the delusional reality to live in, that we're so convinced is actual reality. Is the world living in an alternative reality that doesn't line up with truth? It is. The question must also be asked, are we as well? Are we as well living in an alternative reality that's contrary to God's word? We inevitably end up being dragged on a downward spiral away from God. We're deceived into thinking that we know what's good for us and demanding that we get it, demanding that others give it to us. Here's an illustration for you that hopefully is repulsive to you and hopefully helps you think twice the next time sin is dangling on a carrot in front of you. A couple days ago, we had some banana bread that had chocolate frosting on it, and it was pretty good. And after we finished that meal, it was time for a diaper change for our youngest child. The youngest child then saw some chocolate frosting on the hand that was changing her. And so the youngest child, seeing this, that it was a delight to the eyes, knowing how this chocolate frosting tasted and wanting more of it, proceeded to grab the hand and pull it toward her mouth. Thankfully, the hand pulled back and knew that it wasn't frosting. She didn't know any better. She thought she knew what she wanted. And she was going to do everything in her little power to try and get it. And how often do we do the same things? Completely oblivious to the fact that the thing that we are so focused on, the thing that we are demanding to bring to our mouths, not realizing that that is what's going to lead us to eternal death. And yet we still chase after it. Slowly but surely, these other idols and gods pop up into our lives, and all too often we worship at their altars rather than the Lord's altar. Or maybe we might try to find a different way to do it. Then we can say, God, I'll I'll come back to you, and I'm I'm still worshiping you on this day, but the other days, these are these other gods that I'm going to chase after. But that's no good either. God says, You shall have no other gods before me, and that means simply no other gods, period. God is a jealous God, and there is one God and one God alone, and you shall serve him only. The Israelites weren't the only ones in need of a judge, in need of a deliverer. They also aren't the only ones who think and act corruptly, are they? No, if we're honest with ourselves, we too are in the same need. We're in the same boat. We need a judge. We need a deliverer. We need one who will be there and who will never die. One who will deliver us from our own sinful delusions and our own pursuit of other gods. One who will speak truth to us. One who will never leave us nor forsake us because we are going to try to turn our backs on him again. One who will never break his covenant. Truth is, we need the Lord. And there is good news. But the one who we need is the one who is faithful. The Lord is faithful. His steadfast love could also be translated in this way. His covenant faithfulness. His covenant faithfulness endures forever. And at the right time, God sent forth his son to deliver us from evil. And just like all the other judges, God raised him up at the right time to deliver people who were being held captive to sin and to death. And just like other judges, he too died. Only his death was different. His death wasn't an end to his deliverance. His death was the very deliverance that we needed, paying for our sins, for your sins. His death was what ultimately made us free and made us at peace with God. And unlike all the other judges who came before him, he rose again, never to die Again, And he lives today. He lives forever. The author of Hebrews concludes it this way. He says, Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For the people in the days of Judges, it seemed like there was not a whole lot of hope going on in the day. How could God take them back after they've turned their backs on him again and again? And we can maybe look back and say, sure, God might take them back when they're only this far away, when they've only taken two steps back and one step forward. Or maybe when they're only this far away. But what about when they're farther and farther away? Will God still take them back? And the answer is they only need to turn from their sin. And God was right there, willing to take them back. It's not a matter of how far away we are. It's a matter of who are we serving, who are we looking to, who are we trusting in. And as we repent and confess of our sins instantaneously, God takes us back because of who he is and what he has done. The answer wasn't to be found in their sincerity The answer wasn't to be found in their ability to stay on the straight and narrow. The answer wasn't to be found in the the fact or the truths, or the promises that they make, saying, God, I'm never going to turn my back on you again. But the answer to the question, will God take me back, is found on the grace of the God who has promised never to break his covenant. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for you today as well. How could God ever take you back? How could God ever forgive you when what you've done is so bad or so vile or so ugly? Or how could God ever forgive you when you've promised to never do that again? And yet here we are in the same place as before, maybe only a little farther back. How could he ever put up with our continuous straying from him? And the answer is, again, by his covenant faithfulness which is revealed to us in Christ. God has covenanted with us. He has made a covenant with us. And though we contest it, though we try it over and again, he has confirmed it with his own blood. Our eternal salvation and our true freedom aren't to be found in our bloodlines, but to be found in the blood of Christ and him alone. It's not to be found in our lineage or our heritage, our citizenship, or even our actions, but in the precious blood of Christ, which alone cleanses us from all our sins. So if you want to be saved, so if you want to be redeemed, if you want to be delivered, if you need to be forgiven, then run to Jesus again. And trust in the one who is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Jesus, because he will never Break his covenant. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and we praise you for your goodness, for your grace, and for your mercy. Lord, as we open up your word and we read about the people, your people in the past, we read about your goodness. We see their willingness and their desire to turn their back on you over and over again. But Lord, we also see that lies, that tendency lies within our own hearts too. Wherever we are today, Father, I pray that you would call us back through your word and through your spirit. Help us to see your blood, the blood of the covenant, which was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And help us, Father, to trust in you and what you have done. Thank you, God, that you are a God who is true. You are a God who is faithful even when we are not. And that you have promised to never break your covenant. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us to return again and again. that covenant as many days as you give us here on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.